the Land Maverick Podcast. Everything you need to know to crush it in land investing. I guess to kick things off, for people who don't know, by the way, do you go by David or Dave? Yes. Uh, I have been trying to move my name to Dave for a long time, and I, I can't. For one, David is more professional, so when I'm like speaking, it just makes sense. Like If you're going to use the full name, Dave Parade doesn't flow like David. But uh, yeah, for the longest time, my mom, my ex, and everybody else was like, I'd be like, yeah, I'm Dave. And they'd be like, you're David. Like, damn it. Like, wouldn't let it. Yeah. So we're, we're working on it. I'm trying to, you know, create the like casual, you know, vibes. Honey Badger. Yeah. What? Just, Darren, I just named my management company Honey Badger Management Company. So this has to be a military thing because the only person that I know who ever uses that phrase is Drew. Well, so I think Honey that Badger video is. went viral through the military. Oh, I'm sure it did. And I first saw it in Afghanistan. <laughs> Well, maybe not. Yeah, him, Dave, but. Are you the same. Are you mid thirties like me? So we're yeah. same generation. <laughs> yeah. So, so that video went around. So if I ever get audited, I think the IRS will think I'm, I'm like trolling them because one company is called Honey Badger Management Company. The other is called Rooster Capital. Uh, the nonprofit is called Our Shalom. I love it. Land of the Free. It's kind of like like school book names. Well, it's better than mine. I've got, let's see, uh, some of my LLCs. I've got the D sandwich because there's two Daves and a guy without a D. So, and then I've got uh, the three mustache shears. I have white trash. <laughs> we bought a mobile home park with that. It's three, three white dudes. And we were like, this is a good name. Not a good name. Um, one uncle deep. I've got something else stupid, but I don't remember. It, okay, those aren't worse. They're bad. Yeah, if you get audited, you need you need to prove to the IRS that you're you're not just playing jokes on them. Uh, yeah, it's it's uh, the, I remember the first time I told my lender one of those names, and my lender was like, "Huh?" I was like, "Yeah, that's." The, she's like, "I I hate you guys." She's like, "You know, I got to put this on all of your stuff." Like, uh huh. <laughs> well, for those that might not know who you are, David. Military, it's a millionaire. Tell us the whole kit and caboodle. Yeah, I mean, the long story short, right? Joined the Marine Corps in 08, did 13 years on active duty. And uh, in 2015, I was broke as, you know, I did all the typical military stuff, right? I, I spent all my money on alcohol, tattoos, uh, booze, gym supplements, chicks, cars, whatever, Harley. And in 2015, I was stuck on recruiting duty. I was working long hours and I was like, this sucks, but I don't really have a way out. And a friend of mine was trying to actually try to get me to join Amway. And he handed me Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And I read through that book and I was like, wow, real estate's awesome. And so I, I got started, just kind of started digging into real estate. And then I, I bought a duplex. And at the end of that year, having bought the duplex, it was like, wow, okay, um, this is, actually works. This is really cool. And I just kind of doubled down. So after that, it was, you know, how can I buy more real estate, whatever. 2015, I had a negative or I don't know. I, I don't actually have any idea what my net worth was, but it was it was pretty negative net worth. And then by 2021, a life event out of the military, financially free and living life. So, man, that's powerful. So what would you say is your main strategy or do you do a suite of different things in real estate? Yeah, I, I have dabbled in almost everything at this point, but mainly I'm a buy and hold guy. And I just say buy and hold because I own, you know, like eight single family houses, a 
one or two duplexes, a 40-unit hotel, a 23- and 15-unit apartment, 28-pad RV park. And then on like the syndication side, I'm on the general partnership. I have super small ownership, but like another 940-something doors. And then we're actually... Uh, this one, I actually have a significant... I have 9% of the uh, GP. So it comes out to a decent equity stake, but a 130-unit hotel that we're closing hopefully next week, assuming nothing else comes up. So pretty excited. Have you dabbled into land at all? That's kind of our... A little bit. Um, I, I would actually like to do more of it. I've only done one uh, successful land tr- transaction, but as far as land transactions go, uh, it seems to be like kind of the, the, the perfect... I mean, I bought it for... 8,500 cash. I thought the guy next door who had a recording studio, he told me he would buy it from me for 30. So I was like, oh, sweet. Um, he didn't. He ghosted. And so, uh, but I was able to sell or finance it to somebody at 10% interest with a three year balloon um, and 10% down for 20 grand. So I bought it for 8,500. I'm, you know, by the time it's all said and done, I'll be two and a half X. Um, I'll take it. Or, yeah, two and a half X. Yeah, it was an accident. We we uh, landed the wholesale mailer, and we thought there was a house on the property, and we showed up. And Not the house bad for just kind of winging like it. two months prior, and so like Google Maps and nothing else showed it. And while we were there, it was just kind of like, what do we do with this thing? Um, what would you take for it? And they told us a number, and we had no idea. And so then we walked across the street to the, or not across the street, but across you know the the yard to this recording studio, and we're like, hey, do you need more parking? And he's like, dude, I've been trying to buy that a lot. Like, oh, sick. And so he gave me a number. I'm like, well, this was the easiest deal ever until he until he flaked. But uh, it still worked out well. So pretty sweet. So how does it work? I've always wondered, like, if they tear down a structure, is there kind of some sort of certification process that needs to happen? Or you just assume that anything underground just stays there and don't think about it? Yeah, it. it that's a great question. Basically, what I've gathered is that if and when you went to build on it, city permitting would then come in and be like xyz i think if it's like a big commercial lot with environmental concerns and all that it's probably a different ball game than like a eighth of an acre in a crummy neighborhood in in southwest missouri where like and this one was actually zoned it could be commercial but it's such a small lot i mean you'd have to it would be like an iso container coffee shop with parking you know so not really worthwhile i want to circle back to the rv deal that you said you had like that's pretty cool so like yeah. that's very unique tell me a bit about that so what does the underwriting look like for that that's kind of wild wild west it sounds kind of similar to land business in some ways <laughs> well it gets even more interesting if you hear when you when you hear the full story so i'm only a 10 percent owner in that one so i guess technically that one i don't have a controlling interest in like the rest of the stuff i mentioned but a buddy of mine found this deal ironically he found it because it was in Stockton, Missouri, which is not, you know, it's it's a, it's a lake town. They've got some sailing. There's some cool stuff. There's a marina or two, but like, it's still podunk Missouri pricing. Like, you know, a 3-2 is 120K, 140K, right? And it was listed as a single family house. And the single family house is a double wide trailer. And they had it listed for $400,000. And my buddy's like, well, that's wrong. Something's up starts clicking through pictures and realizes it's listed as a single family, but there's a whole bunch of RV parking on the land in the background. So he calls and sure enough, they've got at the time, I think it was like 
18 or 20 pads and they run it nine months a year, average about four to 4,400 a month during those nine months in rent collected. And then they have the three, two. And we were like, huh, that's pretty sick. Um, it's way underpriced because they don't know how to market it. And so my buddy's like, I need a hundred grand to make this happen. I was like, well, I know a guy, give me 5% and I'll make it all happen. And he's like, yeah, deal. And then the other guy, a good friend of mine, when he texted over, was like, yo, I'm in, but we'll go 45, 45, 10. And they agreed. I was like, oh, cool. I get 10%. That's works for me. And uh, so we bought it. We ended up closing. So they realized how low they priced it as we were going through everything and they kept jacking with it. So we, we ended up at like 480, but we bought it at 480. It was averaging about 4,400 a month for nine months out of the year. And it's currently at 10 grand a month on average, 12 months out of the year. So we've almost tripled the revenue on it just because we, well, one opened it 12 months a year so we could do year long stays. And two, we built it out like an extra five RV pads and then 10 tent camping sites. And then we took the shop that was on the property and built in a little two, one studio and a laundromat. And, you know, it's coin laundry, but the two, one brings in another 700 bucks a month and we rented the mobile home. So that's another eight fifty a month or whatever. And it's been doing, it's been doing good. I mean, it's had its, its problems like last year during the winter, we had a bunch of pipes freeze and, you know, there's, there's always something, but we're, we're debating whether or not to get an appraisal. Yeah. The guy who, the guy who didn't bring the capital who found the deal is a really solid operator. And so that's, yeah, he's running the show. Really all I've done other than like the capital, the lender and the LLC creation. Cause I brought all my guys in is I do like the Google business page and the reviews and the website, like that kind of backend stuff. Cause I I'm decent at it. So Jared and I, we're, we're going through this right now with a bunch of subdivided deals. We're trying to find the lines between funder, coach, operator. In your experience, are those lines just really blurry and you just give each other grace? Or are they clearly defined and everyone operates in their little box? Yeah. It, I mean, it, it varies, it varies on, on the team, right? Like the DeRosa group, Matt Faircloth. I'm in a 670 unit portfolio with them of five apartments. And they're very much like this guy does the asset management. This guy does the property management. Like this guy does, you know, the marketing, this guy does the maintenance, this guy, you know, they're very in their box and they're very organized. Then I've been in other groups where it's, you know, kind of everybody does a little bit of everything and they help each other out. And that seems to work fine. But for smaller stuff, I think it, I think it's kind of like, as you scale, right. If you're in a big deal, you've got to have, clearly defined rules if you're in something like this it's kind of like i'll do that yeah okay oh you can do that um not such a big deal because a we don't have investors it's just the three of us and b like it's not if there's like a delay there or whatever it's not gonna we're all on board with whatever's happening so it's not too bad with the hotel that i'm involved in there's three of us and like one ran all the meetings I ran all the marketing and then the other guy ran kind of the opposite. But, you know, we'd all help each other with everything. It's just kind of, I guess it kind of just depends on who your partnership is with and how much investor capital you've got involved, right? Because investors are going to want to see a much more, who's the guy that does this thing, whereas a JV, you can get away with a lot. So the answer is it, it depends, right? Yeah. Yeah. The, the The other part of that answer is as long as I'm not the operator, the deal will probably do well. So. Yeah. Because what I find, like, I found myself wondering like, what? okay, I'm bringing the money, but 
like, should I draw lines on what I do and what I don't do? And I feel like in this season of my career, I'm just supposed to be happy that I'm doing something at all, right? And not get picky. And even if I feel like my cut, Jared and I, we don't really have cuts right now. So we're still figuring that out. But in theory, that's true. That's true. But in, in theory, even if I felt like my cut was, like if I was doing more work than what my cut is, I should just be happy that I'm working on seven-figure deals. On the subdivide side, on the flipping side, it's it's very streamlined. Guys, don't worry. <laughs> you know, I think it's a mindset thing at this stage. And once we get bigger, we'll need to get more defined. But I think Jared and I, we're just happy to be in like the big boy, playing the big boy game and, and doing big stuff. Yeah, I don't think there's a wrong answer there. As you scale into it, you'll you'll learn what your zone of genius is, what you you're good at, what you're not, and you'll you know adjust accordingly. If you uh, if you're like me and you're terrible at dealing with operations and tenants, you will learn that you should probably keep your ass out of it, and so will your partners. They'll be like, Dave, we love you. Go do something else. Now, okay, one quick question because I know Jaron has some. When you said partners. Are you operating in like a group of 10 to 20 guys and, and you do deals with trusted friends or are these like specific two to three people you're always doing deals with? No, it's, I mean, it's, it's kind of the first. Okay. Um, so it's the ecosystem. I mean, I've done deals. Okay. Yeah. The ones that I have a controlling asset or controlling interest in are all either hundred percent me, 50, 50 me or 33% me. And then we've got the JV with the RV part, but then everything after that, is you know syndications with one or two teams where I trust the operator, I like the deal, I'm willing to talk to my investors and see if any of them want in. I'll take on pieces of the puzzle, like uh, on the hotel, I'm going to do the Google business page, run some ads, uh, the social media presence, you know, um, and the guy that I'm partnering with is a really solid operator. Um, and so it's kind of a hodgepodge. Like they've got to be close. They've got to be someone I know I can trust. The deal's got to be really good. Cause I get propositioned all the time. And half the time the deal looks like crap. And the other half the time, I don't know the person. And I'm like, it could be the best deal in the world. But the fact that the only reason you reach out to me was to pitch me on helping you with the deal kind of scares me. Cause I don't know your track record and we don't have a relationship. So there's no skin in the game there. Um, I'd much rather facilitate a deal that has a slightly lower return with somebody I know and trust than, you know, some of these, some of these guys with their, the numbers you're like, no way, buddy. I've played that game. I've, I see your cap rate being better than your, your exit cap is better than your entrance cap. And I know that's not, not realistic right now, but. So how do you, how do you resolve conflict? Let's say you're in a deal with someone because Jared and I, we try to be vague here. Out of the many dozens of deals we have, we have one partner that possibly is not working out. So how do you guys hand... Do you just finish the deal and then just not work with the guy again? Or do you try and cut sling load halfway through? How does that work? Yeah, first off, I'm terrible at conflict. Um, like if, if you and I had a beef, if you were like a really good friend and, and I could tell that there was something I'd done or you'd done and there was like an issue there, I would have no problem just be like, bro, let's sit this down and, and figure it out. But when it comes to like investors or contractors, like, like a contractor comes to you and they're like, I'm done. And I'm like, oh, cool. Actually, it sucks. Like 
I can't have that conversation. I'm just like, I don't want to tell this guy he's proud of his work and I got to tell him it's all fucked up. Like that's not my role. Um, or if it's like telling investors like, Hey, this deal's terrible. Uh, sorry, you're not getting distributions this quarter. Um, that's also not like I'm, I'm, I don't like that side of conflict. I'm a, I'm a familiar with the disc profile. I'm a 99 I. So I, I very much like st- thrive off feedback and, you know, I want everybody to like me. So I'm the wrong guy for that. But to answer your question, you know, it really does. It, it does vary on the person and or the partnership. Um, I've been in a syndication where, uh, you know, they just kind of bought somebody out. Like uh, they offered his shares up to the GPLP team and, and sold it off. And they were like, cool, we're done. Um, I've seen that happen. I'm in one right now where the hotel is technically owned by an LLC that's 33%. One of the three partners was just, it wasn't that he was so frustrated with the deal. He was just so frustrated with the amount of time that the deal took. And he's like, look, I, my time is better focused elsewhere. He was willing to sell the deal at basically break even to somebody when we had an offer. And me and the other guy were like, why don't you just give us your equity and you have the exact same result, but now we have 50-50 on the deal that we don't want to sell. And he did. So we, you know, I mean, we literally a, a week ago emailed my attorney and said, this is where we split it. This is the balance that's owed, you know, all the things we were taking it were 50 50 now uh on this and uh that was totally amicable still friends we're actually he's he's still a one-third owner of one of the apartments with us and so he just that one particular deal was just too much of a time piece and so you know we basically bought him out and called it a day i mean i say i say for you know give us your shares like we we took over the his share of taxes for the year and and some other stuff so definitely a, a, a buyout of sorts but not at full value um so as long as we don't drive it into the ground, that's a win. Um, I, we might. I don't know. <laughs> Jury's still out. So, uh, But at least, you know, at this point, I don't really stand to lose any more capital if we do that than if it was just me in there. So, um, no, it, it's it's going fine. It just takes a lot of time to manage a crappy hotel. Jared and I, were, I would say we're a couple years behind you in terms of like the net worth climb. Both of us are kind of concerned that once, once we're – like super wealthy, which is very subjective, will turn into different people. Have you seen people get real nasty when there's like six figure cuts at stake? Yeah, money, money. Uh, what's the what's the quote? I think it is it Machiavelli. I don't remember. Machiavelli might have been the one who said it, but basically, it probably doesn't go that far back. And I just think it's him. But essentially, like money doesn't change people; it reveals who you really were. And so, I think like if you're the type of person who's like, like if you were in a position on like, like captain of the football team and you'd screw over the guy you didn't like, like then maybe there's a part of you that when you have money on the table, you'd have no problem being cutthroat and be like, nope, this is my share. Uh, and there's something to that, man. There are some crazy business guys who got to the top by being cutthroat. And it was like, look, dude, if you're not pulling your weight, you're out. Um, and I don't necessarily think there's anything wrong with that. I couldn't do it. I, I would have to like, if I'm getting screwed, I have no problem, you know, doing what needs to happen. Uh, but usually I just go to the attorney and I'm like, help me. Like you be the bad guy. I'm paying you. But I don't know that the, what does the attorney do? He like sends in a letter saying, stop your activity. Otherwise Dave is going to sue you. It depends on the, uh, the situation. Um, you know, I had one situation where I basically had a, 
a would-be partner who was technically a 1099 and we had to terminate. Um, basically, like I, we tried to negotiate like an amicable split and just kind of like, you know, hey, uh, consider this like termination. Um, you know, but there's been much more common, I say much more common, it's not like it happens all the time, but more common is like, yeah, cease and desist. Or um, I paid someone like 10 grand. I basically, I basically paid a former partner 10 grand to sign a release that he would never say my name in town. I was like, we don't work together. We never work together. You were an employee. If I hear you saying that you were a partner, like, you know, and it was basically like this one page letter that was like, all the reasons I can come after you. Here's 10 grand to just keep your mouth shut. And uh, so far it's worked. That was kind of a weird situation. It was an employee who left the company, took all my buyer's data. Like he took my entire buyer's list, like exported it and ran. And I was like, bro, I could come after you for multiple six figures. He's like, how do you figure? I was like, there's 1,200 names on that list. And I've already raised $3 million from it this year. I'm pretty sure I can make an argument for the fact that, you know, but it just wasn't, it just wasn't worth it at that point. I'm like, look, dude, delete it. If I find out that you emailed any of them or you're saying that we were partners or you're using me as a credibility piece in, in your puzzle, like game over. I was like, I'll give you this check if you sign this thing. And so that was kind of the exchange. So at this point, it's like, if anything ever pops off, then I've got grounds to go back. But he's been been quiet. So things have been good. So on your attorney, one of the things that I've been really struggling to find is a go-to attorney. Like I want to join the attorney club where I can say, I just send it to my attorney. But the issue is that we do deals in multiple different markets in multiple different states. And it seems like, at least in today's day and age, attorneys are very specialized and very state-specific. So when you say my attorney, are you dealing with multiple attorneys? How do you find that attorney if you have just one person that's your go-to? How does all that work? Yeah, I am currently just dealing with the one. And, and this is what I tell you is, well, for one, if you... Go and you can do consults, right? So you can just go feel out a couple different, like ask ask some big hitters in your area and find whoever the decent real estate attorneys are, and then just go 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 sit down, do pay an hour, pay for an hour or whatever, and do a consult and just talk to them. My guess, and every state's different, but my guess is that you're in a similar situation where even if your property is in a different state, if you registered that LLC to do business in your state or vice versa, or you created it in your state and registered it in the other state theoretically, you should be able to, any legal stuff that comes up, if you're the one filing, file it in your state. Be like, well, the LLC is owned here, so we can conduct business per Missouri rules. Like most of my LLCs, except for the first couple, are Wyoming LLCs registered to do business in Missouri. And most of my properties are in Missouri, but the ones that are elsewhere, you know, I've had, I've had a, this isn't even a real estate one. This is a, like an intellectual property issue, but I've got a Really, it's it's not even a loss. It's a total loss cause. This dude totally screwed me out of probably seventy grand worth of commissions that he owed me for a product that I was helping him market, and he just ghosted. And he basically he Ponzi schemed a business and ran off with everybody's money. And so we're suing, knowing we're not going to ever. We can't get a hold of the guy. He's not returning any calls. We haven't been. We even we even dropped a cease and desist to his mom's address because that's the registered agent. No response. Right. We know that we're probably going to get absolutely nothing, but I was talking to my attorney. He's like, well, it's going to cost you 10 or 15 grand to get all of this to the finish line if he doesn't fight. But if you get a $70,000 judgment federally, you can write it off on your taxes. And, you know, at your, at your tax rate, that's 
at least a 2x, if not a 3x multiple on the money you're going to put into the lawsuit. I was like, yeah, worth it. And if he does come back and I get the 70 grand, awesome. It's actually probably more than that. It's 70 grand off the books that he gave me and the books that he gave me are cooked and they refuse to give me the actual quick QuickBooks uh, access. So I'm like, it, they had a hundred and so this is a commission based thing. I got 20% of the net, right? They had $160,000 of uncategorized expenses. And when I texted him about it, he's like, oh, that was me paying off a former partner. And I'm like, oh, so it's owner draws. So that's $160,000 of profit you're hiding. I'm like, well, 20% of that is not terrible. So there's half of it. And, uh, you know, so it's like if we, if we got the QuickBooks stuff subpoenaed, I'm sure it's probably a lot more than that. But we're just, we're really, we're just doing the paperwork side to get the tax write off to get something out of this mess. Cause that's pretty much a guarantee. Either he comes back and we get access to everything and I can prove right there, you owe me this much money. Or he doesn't come back and we get, the write-off but the whole point anyway sorry so that's that guy's llc is in california the business was in california everything was in california because i'm registered in missouri and i signed a contract with them and i initiated we filed it in missouri well that's good to know so it sounds like i just got to go where i'm based on. yeah it sounds cool and i'll tell you i mean it's like i think my retainer is like 250 a month so it's not terrible but it is definitely nice. I mean, the number of times that guy's told me like, dude, if you'd called me a month ago, I would have saved you this much money on things that I you know, dragged my feet. So now I'm just like, Hampton, I need you to do this. Hampton, can you do this? Please do this. Can you look this over? Hey, I'm hiring someone. Can you do the employment contract? Like, yeah, it's great. I want to circle back to syndications and partnerships and whatnot. So one of the things that both Drew and I are actively discussing. I, I kind of wanted to pick your brain about structuring because we've heard different, um, different, I guess, stances on it. Are, are people have you know different uh, opinions about the matter? Do you think that? And I guess it depends deal by deal and what kind of the you know what investment vehicle you're using. But at a high level, if you were to because it sounds like you have buyers, you raise money. Do you defer to doing a syndication, a joint venture with a handful of people that you know in your network? What's your go-to? And I know this is not legal or financial advice, so no one sue us, please. <laughs> yeah, disclaimer. I am none of those certifications. I am too dumb, so good luck. Um, it, it, man, it's always, a, it depends. And I hate that. It, it really kind of depends on how you found the deal and what you, what you need to make it happen. Right. So I think that's, that's the piece of the puzzle is like, it, it's going to be deal to deal for me, unless you're doing like a fund or like a, like a, you know, you, you're doing, we just wholesale and we're raising massive pot of capital for whatever, but like the big syndicate, the big, the big apartments are all syndicated. The two smaller apartments in the hotel, that's me and two friends. We needed 300 K to take it down. And I was like, I got a hundred. You want in? You got a hundred? You want in? Like literally my roommate was in the kitchen and he was my roommate at the time in California. And I'm talking to my buddy Hugh and on the phone and he's like, I got a hundred grand. We just need to find another hundred. And I looked at my roommate and I was like, you want in on a hotel for hundred grand? I was like, it's, it's a hotel, two apartments and a single family. It's 79 doors. Here's the numbers. And he's like, yeah. And then we literally, we sat on a zoom call, like the three of us. Then it was like, if you lose a hundred grand, would it be the end of the world? No. We went through all three of us and we were like, 
let's see what happens. And so we, you know, formed a one, three, you know, three, 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 three percent, whatever. And that was that. I will tell you that the JV model is a way simpler piece of the puzzle because you got like three to five people that are all invested and they can communicate and you can talk shit and you can work through stuff together. But if you're getting into the larger stuff where you're going to be more than five to seven people, probably like the syndication model really makes sense. Cause it's like, you don't have too many hands in the pot. You can still make decisions. I'll also tell you that I will never, well, I don't want to say never, but I don't have any intention of ever like syndicating as the lead syndicator. Like I don't want to mess with SEC attorneys. I don't want to mess with the structure. I don't want to mess with paying for, I mean, that's not a cheap, you, you've got to know that you're, solid on most likely locking that property because you're gonna spend 20 30 grand getting everything set up for the 506b 506c and the attorney fees and everything else you're gonna have all the investor capital you're gonna have all the upfront stuff and you might be the main sponsor on this is one hundred and eighty thousand dollars hard going into the closing and like if something went wrong he's that's it i mean a large 100 of that is emd but that's 80 60 80 grand that's attorney fees environmental studies you know inspections appraisals uh, loan fees, like everything. Um, so it's a much bigger beast, but once we're in and done, it's, it's, you know, there's probably 30, 40 passive investors that just kind of chill and they don't have a say. So it's not like you have to have a meeting every time with the LPs to just meet with the GPs and there's only four of us. So it makes it a lot easier. So I would say really, I guess the answer is try to keep that people who actually have their hand in the cookie jar to, you know, a smaller number. And then after that, you just kind of get structure however it makes sense. At what stage, let's say someone brings you a deal and they say, hey, David, do you want to get involved with this? At what stage do you start talking about cuts versus just hopping in and making sure it's even a deal? Like, what's it, what if it's un, not under contract yet? It's a big deal. It takes like two months to get under contract. I mean, when does that conversation happen with your partners? Yeah, it totally depends on... Like, man, I hate that. I keep saying that, but you are asking questions that, that are going to vary deal to deal and, and whatever. So I'm also the worst person I think to ask that I don't care about money enough. And I, I joke that way. Like, obviously I care about it, but I'm very, like, I have no problem with the idea that money's a currency and it'll come back. So I will spend to be like, we'll figure it out and I'll do this. We'll figure it out and I'll do that. And so when I get into one of these, like this one, I didn't even discuss cut until I'd raised $850,000. And then I was like, so how are we, how are we doing this again? He's like, and, and it ended up, I mean, it was great. Like I knew the guy well enough to know he wasn't going to hose me. And if he had, we weren't closing. So I could have easily just told my investors like, Hey, you don't want to be a part of this. This guy's doing some shady stuff. And it would have been, we would have all been good. Yeah. Um, but I didn't, I didn't even like, it didn't even cross my mind to ask that question because I just, I know the guy, I know the deal. I really liked the deal and I know it's going to be lucrative in the end. Right. Um, and a lot of those like syndication types of, you can't get paid based on the amount you raise, but you can get like a, dis- a different equity stake at like levels, depending on what you're doing for the deal. Right. So like I'm doing all the marketing side and social media side, but then I also brought in this and in investing. So their deals, they'll structure kind of that way. If it's more like a JV, I would have that conversation up front. Like that would be, you know, like, I mean, I literally told my friend, like, you give me 5% and I'll go get you the hundred grand uh, and I ended up getting 10%. But like, that was right off the bat was like, yeah, absolutely. I can do that for you. But like, I'm not giving you an investor without some skin in the game on my end. 
Because Jared, Jared and I, we we have a deal. Um, Jared is actually not involved anymore because he's he's allocating time towards other projects. But we we have a partner. Yeah. Well, no, it's, that's true though. I mean, you've got so much stuff going on. You you dipped out. He, he basically dipped out, and he's like, "Hey guys, you, clearly you and and person number two have this under control. Uh, I'm going to go work on my other stuff over here. If you want to toss me something at the end, that's great." Um, but we started trying to talk cuts with this guy pretty early and it was very clear that he, he's a wonderful guy, very clear that he didn't want to talk about it until after we got under contract. So it's kind of, it's kind of like that awkward phase of, I'm going to do a lot of work on this and then I have no idea like what he's thinking. I mean, what if, what if we're totally off on this? Um, was this the person who found the deal in the operations or is this the guy who, ah, okay. Yes. Yeah. He found the deal. Yeah. But if he doesn't have capital, like one way or the other, as long as you have a piece that he doesn't, you, you won't get, you shouldn't get hosed too bad. Well, what I'm taking from your experience is in general, you lead with value. You don't try to pinch pennies over cuts and sometimes you're going to get hosed or maybe like jabbed a little bit with a little pocket knife. But for the most part, it's going to work out in your favor because you have an abundance mindset. People are going to keep coming back to you because you lead with value. And it it's a profitable strategy overall. And you don't stress about the small stuff. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, it, probably to a fault. I'm a little too trusting and a little too generous and a little too all the things that come with being a high eye personality on the disc profile. But I do absolutely like fundamentally at my core, I'm the kind of guy who wants to think you can close a deal on a handshake, but also wants to think like if you needed a million dollars to make this deal happen and I brought you 900,000 of that, you know, 850 and then 50 for me, why would you ever do something to me that means the next time you need a million dollars, not only will I not be there, but I will be telling people don't trust that guy with me. Like people, like people know me as a connector at this point. And so I, I am very quick to tell people like, look, man, my reputation matters more than almost anything here. And I will have no problem telling someone, Hey man, might be a great guy. I would never do business with them. And I'll just leave it at that. It usually seems to get the point across to people. And there's a, there's a handful of people out there like that, that have, you know, whether they did something or they just have a weird vibe where I'm like, there's a guy, I'm not going to name any names or even talk about what industry he's in, but he's very successful in real estate and uh, more in the active versions of real estate. And uh, he's always been super, super, super nice to me. Great guy. Everybody seems to love him. But I'm also very much like every time someone brings him up, I'm like, man, I just get the vibe that that dude was selling mom's house under out from under her for 50 bucks. Like, And everybody I've ever jokingly said that to has agreed. And so I'm like, that kind of piece of the puzzle i think and i would like to think most people are not short-sighted enough to screw uh with something good but you never know and the ones that do they'll they'll weed themselves out pretty quick right you can usually spot it it's usually my biggest turnoff in real estate or in business is somebody whose money is their biggest driver and that's usually the leading indicator like if you can sense that like money 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 over everything like a i'll never do business with you and b that's probably the guy who's going to screw you like that. Or, as this sounds, if they lead with religion. Um, every single actual lawsuit I've been in has been with a company that either had the word Christian in the in the name of the company. or And I say every single, it's twice. 
Um, but both times, one was Christian something construction, like Christian consulting or Christian construct. I don't know. And the other was a guy who's like, might as well have been like, hi, my name's Dave. I'm a Christian. You should trust me because Christianity, like, and I was naive, you know, I grew up in a super religious world. I, I believed, you know, I still believe, but I, I like in that realm, like my view on religion was pretty high. And it wasn't until my attorney basically sat me down and was like, Hey, dumbass, the biggest thing that scammers do is they try to you like hide behind religion or family and like the trust me, bro metrics. And he's like, so if somebody comes and they lead with that, that should be red flag. Number one. And I was like, Ooh, I, that makes sense. Like that'd be the perfect thing to hide behind as a con artist. Yeah. When I moved from California to Indiana, it was very interesting because in the real estate world in California, if you were a Christian, you kind of just intentionally did not advertise it because it didn't go over well. But then in Indiana, it was almost like everybody wore it on their sleeve. Like, you know, it was a way to try to like get, uh, I guess, like, you know, kudos or whatever. And I did run into a lot of that where, you know, just because you're, you know, you say you're a Christian doesn't mean you really are, you know? So I, uh, I've seen that firsthand. Yeah, I found that the most religious people don't wear it on their sleeve. Like, you wouldn't know. Like, if you think, like, uh, everybody knows who Brandon Turner is. Like, he's very religious. He actually leads worship at his church, and he's he's a phenomenal human. And you wouldn't know it on his content. Like, unless you talk to him. You're just like, wow, this is a really nice guy. And if you get into it, you realize, like, he's very religious, and, and he's he is a great guy. I found that that seems to be kind of, you know, kind of kind of the norm is, like, I don't say the better, the better a Christian, um, but like, but like the more genuine somebody is about it, the less in your face they seem to be about it. I wanted to circle back to when you raise money, what are those splits typically look like? Because one of the things that we run into is if Drew brings on backup funders in any capacity in the land space, they get away with daylight robbery. Like people pay a lot for money in land. And I think outside of the land world, people, if they raise money, are paying a whole lot less. So what is a, I mean, I know it's deal by deal, but generally, what do you pay the people that you raise money from? I guess the first question I would have for clarification is, are you guys doing debt only when you do this? Like you're raising money as like uh, points and percentage back, or are you doing equity partnerships? Okay. Um, in that case, so like on the syndication side, it's usually like 70, 30 or 80, 20. Uh, everyone I've been in is 70, 30 split. So with like a pref hurdle. So let's say, uh, but that's split among all the passive investors, right? Yeah. So like the, the, the LPs, the passive investors would get a 7% return before that 70, 30 split triggers. And then anything over 7% for that quarter would come out of a 70, 30 split from profits, 70 to investors, 30 to the main GP. And then, it, it kind of waterfalls. So like this one, we anticipate three years in that we'll do a refi and, and give all the investors their capital back. We're not on floating crazy, stupid bridge debt. And we've anticipated the refi being at 10%. So I think we're safe on it. Unlike a lot of the things you're seeing right now, but the anticipation is that we'll be able to do enough of a raise and appraisal to give the investors most of, if not all of their capital back. And the plan is once their capital's returned, it'll just be a straight 50, 50 split going forward which is more than 
generous because the return on cash at that point for them is insane. So, you know. Jaron, for another data point. So David, I actually, this is the first time I'm coming public with this, but I just, I just walked away from a great opportunity. It was a competitor to Boxable. Um, So I just walked away from Circlestone Capital Oxygen House realized I was way too busy. And they, for another data point, they offer their limited partners, their passive investors, 10% hurdle. And then anything over that is split 50-50. So if if it's 40% return a year, the investors walk away with uh, 25 of that and general partners walk away with 15. So it does come out to like stupid expensive from the GP's perspective. It's like low 60% cut to the passive investor. And once I have a good nest egg that I don't want to exercise in land, I will for sure invest as a limited partner into apartments and bills because just th- you can you can average 20 to 25% a year for wiring money one time which is which is really good. Yeah, and that sounds like it's probably almost more of an equity fund than a or not equity but like a yeah, but it, it's almost in like the venture capital private equity space type deal if it's a boxable competitor where it's like yeah, it's technically a syndication but it's it's more of a business model so i feel like there's they're probably paying a little bit heftier because there's like a perceived risk there as opposed to like i'm buying an apartment complex that's stabilized that does this already it's like we're projecting some crazy returns we're not sure we're going to hit them so we need to make sure that our investors are you know they, they got to compensate for that so i think that's really the ultimate like verdict right is like a hotel theoretically will pay better than a stabilized apartment and a value add apartment should pay better than a stabilized apartment and house flipping fund or a wholesaling fund. You know, it's, it's ultimately at the end of the day, it's, you know, supply and demand risk. Those are like, you know, one drives the market and I don't want to close, close the other fingers and flip, flip the camera up. Well, I'm like, I'm like these two and then there's this one and then these two go away. I'm like, Oh, I'm flipping everybody off. All right. Well, uh, stupid oh man um but like you know it, the risk is the the piece i think that drives the the reward but the supply and demand drive, drives the market and those are like the biggest variables in in most stuff when you really boil it down so it feels like this whole syndication model is what people default to in terms of structuring limited partners passive investors and you know operators, general partners, et cetera. But I wish that there was a easier vehicle to set it up that had less red tape. And I feel like you could probably get away with it with a sophisticated JV structuring. But I mean, how, I guess what I'm asking is, do you know with what you've been exposed to, how best to set up a syndication that's not a syndication. So you don't have to spend like 20 to 50 grand and have all this like regulation and red tape to jump through. Yeah. I think it just depends on how many investors you have and how big you're going. If you're buying a one or $2 million property with five people, you can get by with the JV. You're buying a $11 million hotel with 40 investors. The main reason that you do it this way is because you don't want to deal with 40 people that you got to get on a call and 40 people that have to do this. And like, it's hurting cats. They actually want to be passive. You know, they want to be hands off. And so the syndication structure works well for that. The downside with the syndication structure is it's deal by deal, right? 
So the other model that people do there is the fund, like the fund of funds. So like you could start a fund and be like, yo, this isn't tied to equity. You could do a fund and tie it to equity, but you could do a fund and say, hey, we're going to pay you 8%. And we're going to pay you 8% whether we have a deal or not. And then you can buy whatever you want in the fund and do whatever you want with the fund. And the beautiful thing there is you don't owe equity to... So like, let's say, let's say you raised a million dollars, then you bought a million dollar property with that million dollars. You paid them all 8%, but the property made you 12. Like you're, you're spreading the difference. But then if 10 years down the road, if everybody's happy with that, and, you know, someone leaves the fund, you just have someone else buy their shares out of the fund. Like you could do that whole game because it's not tied to the property. And then 10 years from then you sell the place, you've made that 4% spread or 2%, you know, depending on how the year went, but then you get all the equity on the upside or, you know, so you can structure the fund very differently and you can kind of wash and repeat and reuse the fund. But yeah, it just, it really just, I think it just really boils down to like the size of the deal and how you're like, how big you're trying to go with it. If it's an individual property or if you're trying to do multiple deals with the same. Yeah. I want to interrupt Drew because he has a question and I always have questions and he always jumps in. So ha 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 ha. Just kidding. Go for it, bro. So the reason he's asking, (laughs) no, no, Jared, Jaren's been trying to get me to start a fund for over a year now. And I've run the numbers so many different ways and looked at the brain damage. And it just, it doesn't make sense for the point we're at right now. So his question was biased and inside joke between us. Because about once a quarter, he asked me to start a fund. And I can, but I think at this period, it doesn't make sense at this moment. At some point, though, we will have to do something in that vein and Drew's the guy I think so over that oversees that for sure but we have to we're gonna have to do something because we start scaling it's gonna we're just inevitably gonna have to get cheaper money I, I can have a 506c ready really quickly I just I don't want to do the brain damage right now hey I kind of hate to ask this question because it's like a like stereotypical question that people ask on these kind of podcasts but I actually am curious based on the type of deals that you're doing. You're in a very different space in real estate than I am at the moment. The state of the market and the future, are we looking at a downturn 2024? Are you seeing any deals right now on the buy and hold side? Because I heard that those kind of dried up. Yeah. So we're going to see some ups, then we're going to see some downs, and then eventually it'll be somewhere else. And there's my prediction officially. Um <laughs> I have no idea. It is a weird, <laughs> a year ago, I had a pretty good answer for this and I was pretty spot on um, as to where I thought we'd end up. Right now, my my honest gut answer is I feel like we're kind of going to stay in a plus or minus 5% stalemate for the next six months. My big question mark on what happens after that is what lever people decide to try to pull for elections. You know, because at the risk of getting my my ass canceled six months from now, interest rates are going to drop, gas prices are going to drop, Black Lives Matter is going to come out of the woodwork over some crazy thing. And like, you know, we've all seen it like four years ago, eight years ago, 12 years ago. And it doesn't, it's not because of racism. It's because of media. The racism is always there. The, the, this is always there, but the media will spotlight things to make people go crazy. Depending on how that goes, Right. I mean, if, if rates dropped right now, I think prices would skyrocket because they didn't dip at all when they jacked rates. But where we're at right now, at least in my market, is 
there's deals, but there's not deals because we're in this weird lag where nobody can afford to buy and sellers still think they're in a seller's market. So sellers are still trying to get, you know, they're like chasing the market down right now. So like I had a property I listed at 130 that I just went under contract at 100. And granted, I'm 80 into it, so I don't really care. But, um, but it was like six months ago, 130 would have, you know, sold. Um, we listed at 125. We dropped it to 115. We dropped it to 110, and then we got an all cash, no contingency offer at 100. But we're chasing the market down. And so what it is is, is you know, right now you're every house that sells is a new low comp. And so we are going down, not crazy fast, but sellers haven't recognized it or don't want to recognize it. So they're not, they're not listing lower. They're listing and trying to nickel dime, whatever. And they're not in a position to do that because they don't have a buyer pool. And so you give it three months, six months, I think you'll see a depression in pricing for sure. I mean, it is in some markets, it's already there. Like the heavy, the high ticket markets, the rates crushed pricing very quickly. More Midwest, it's it's pretty stable, but we're still seeing it. But it won't be until three, six months down the road that we really start to see like the the discounted buying opportunities with sellers who are just like, please offload this. Like I don't have a ton of debt. I should have like we're still at the place where somebody can list a property and you can look at them and go, Yeah, a year ago you would have gotten that. You missed the mo- you missed the mark. Like you you're too late. Sorry. Um, but they haven't realized it yet. And so if rates stay the same, I see that kind of building into a steeper trajectory i would not be surprised if rates get lowered you know for legitimate reasons aka re-election in about six months um in which case i think it would just stop and like it might even jump significantly because you're in then you're in a spot where it's like oh well huh people can afford my house and there weren't any houses now people can move because the other weird piece of this puzzle is the lock-in factor. I mean, 70% or something of mortgages right now are locked under 3%. And so why would you, in the current environment, unless you're moving like out of state, like if you're in the same area, why would you ever sell a 30-year fixed at two and a half right now knowing what you're going to have to buy? You might as well just stay put. And that's what we're seeing is there's not as much inventory because of that. Yeah. So it's weird. Yeah, I think I think the bottom line ultimately will be that affordability of housing is what's going to drive because the inventory is not changing much, supply and demand is not changing much. You know, there's a whole lot of variables that aren't changing, and the one factor is really the interest rates and the affordability. If affordability increases, people will buy. Affordability stays the same, market will drop a little bit. So it's harder to get deals than it ever has been. I think that being said. Nobody actually treated the land business like a real business up until about six months ago. So, you know, it was a kind of wild, wild west niche that you could literally just spit and you can get deals. Now you actually have to have a strategy and not just take like a templated letter template that you got some from some guru camp and blast it out to people. You actually have to have a brand and you have to like, you know, highlight your unique selling propositions. I think going hard on data too, and like really targeting ownership demographics and other things to help increase conversion is really important. But I don't know how long it's going to be that way. I think a lot of what's happening is household sailors can't get deals. So they're venturing into land. And so that's like kind of inflating a lot of things that's going on. And if 
prices do end up dropping and there's more deals to be had, I think they might go back to wholesaling and land might free up a little bit more. But I think by and large, you know, anybody who's in the land business right now, if you think you can get away with just sending 2000 blind offers and get, you know, actually have a sustainable business, those are not the days anymore, my friend. You're going to have to step up your game for real. And there's a lot of competition out there. So, you know, I don't think that we're at a stage where, of course, the land business works all the time. We see deals come across, you know, the community all the time. You know, I get people started in land business all the time, but we really do need to treat it like a business. Hey, um, well, we're running out of time. I, I would say about one in 10 of our podcast guests is prior service military. I think the Marines, you guys don't say ex-Marines, you just say Marine. Okay. Um, you can tell I'm an army guy. So I, I left active duty late twenties and I, I've always wanted to ask this. We just had a Marine, uh, recon. What do you call it? Marine force recon or something. So, um, highly qualified, very smart, hardworking guy. Um, Wanted to ask him this, but we ran out of time. I left Army active duty late 20s, and I felt like I wasted a lot of my 20s in an organization that taught me very little technical skills. Now I'm in my mid-30s, and I've realized learning leadership and learning it on the government's dime was like the best thing I could have spent my 20s doing. Have you seen that in your own uh, career, and if so, what would you say to the people who have not had that experience? How can a civilian replicate that if they were to try and kind of get that leadership experience, but they're like, hey, I'm, I'm 40, I can't join the military. How do I get what you guys got? Yeah, I would agree. I think the intangibles you get out of service are super valuable, right? The ability to make decisions, discipline, leadership, uh, being okay working for no extra pay right? Because when you first start a business, you're not getting paid. And most people tap out real quick. Um, but service members are like, I used to do duty for 24 hours on Christmas Eve. This is, this is whatever I'm working for myself now. So there's a lot of intangibles for sure. And I think, you know, I would pit a 22 year old leaving the service over a 22 year old leaving college any day. I think there's a ton of value there. So I would never undersell or undercut the military. I think it's a great option right out of high school for replicating those types of things. I mean, as cliche as it is, it's putting yourself in situations. So, you know, if you're, if you're in college, put yourself in a leadership role in your frat or in your sports team or whatever. If you're in high school, like go, go, I don't know if Boy Scouts is still a thing. I'm an Eagle Scout. It was great for me in, in high school. I think they're kind of struggling right now, but there's organizations or there's sports teams or there's like put yourself into a role, you know, as a captain or a whatever, like where you can be just in that role for something and you'll, you'll develop it. It's reps, right? The military does a really good job facilitating it because at every level, at least in the Marine Corps, at every level, there's really only like three to four people under your charge. So as a squad leader, or as a fire team leader, you've got three Marines and you, and then as a squad team, a squad leader, you've got 12 Marines under you, but it's four fire team or, you know, three fire team leaders. And then you as a platoon, you got three squad leaders. And then you, as a commander, you've got three platoon sergeants and then you, and so it's like every stepping stone is not that much different except for what you're doing. And you're always in a role, unless you're like a total dirtbag, they're always going to give you a chance to take it to that next level. Even if it's just because of rank or just because you happen to be there. 
there's a pride piece and there's all these things. So like you're constantly getting to stretch and test that and facilitate. I mean, shoot, I was running 20 years old. I was running 85 vehicle convoys in Afghanistan. <laughs> like tell me, name, name me a college kid getting that kind of crazy life experience. Like not only am I the navigation and comms guy, but, uh, I hope we don't find an IED, you know, <laughs> like it's a, a whole different ball game. Um, but they slowly work you into those situations and they, they have faith in you. So I, I would say if you're in a civilian world, like sports teams are great organizations like Boy Scouts or charities or, or frat, um, just get in somewhere where, where you can take a leadership role around supportive people. Like on the football team, you, if you're the captain of the football team, you know, the other players, they look up to you. They're not going to, there's going to be shit talking always, but it's not like, they're going to, they're not going to hate you, you know, like as a boss, unfortunately, it's not always easy with employees. Um, if, especially if you're a boss as like a manager and you didn't, you don't have any control over who gets hired or the culture, like that might not always be an easy situation. So you should just work up to it in situations where you're with supportive people. And this sounds selfish, but I think the gist of it is find somewhere to make all your leadership mistakes on, on someone else's dime, right? Where there's, where there's no consequences. Because as an entrepreneur, if you make a leadership mistake, you could lose a really good employee. It could be very expensive, tens of thousands of dollars, right? Versus if you make it in a sphere where there's really no repercussions, then that's a win-win. David, if people want to connect with you, where do we send them? When I drop in the show notes. The link is uh, thebestpodcastguest.com. And it, uh, nice. yeah, I love bought it. that a while back and I love it. Um, and it, it'll drop yeah, you to a awesome. page where you can download the free copy of my book and, and all my social medias are linked there. Pretty simple page, but love it. Well, until next time, my friend, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, brother. You guys have a great day. Thanks for having me. Thanks, David. <laughs>